Good morning, it's Sunday, the 24th of July, 2016. It's a murder mystery with only one suspected killer, or a case of indigestion. Today we look at the official story and the rumored story of what happened to filmmaker Thomas H. Hintz on Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I'm your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Did you know that you can refrigerate that bratwurst you didn't eat during your Sunday barbecue, and it will taste just fine when microwaved the next day? You don't have to throw it away. Just another money-saving tip from Coffee with Jeff. All right, only two weeks till we announce the winner of the Coffee with Jeff mug. It's still not too late to get your name into the drawing for your chance to win. Just send me an email at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com saying, I want to win a damn mug. We will pick the winner on my 100th show. And yes, you can use Facebook and Twitter if that's what you like to use. So today's story is about a man named Thomas H. Hintz who died by either an unfortunate accident or was murdered. But as I researched this one, I found it a little sad that his death is all that he's remembered for. He was a producer, director, screenwriter, and actor known as the father of westerns, and he was responsible for making over 800 films. But more than that, he did a lot to create the way that films are made today. He revolutionized the whole motion picture industry. Yet once he died, his name seems to have been forgotten. Why did a a name like D.W. Griffith live on and Thomas H. Hintz fade out? These days, if his name is brought up, it's just in connection with William Randolph Hearst. And you know, the thing about this is, well, Hearst was a powerful man and... Alright, that means we have some Bigfoot news. Good news for all the believers of the legendary creature known as Bigfoot. Now there's a safe harbor for all you guys. According to the Santa Cruz Mountain Bulletin, there's a Bigfoot Discovery Museum. Come and hear some of the strange facts for a change. The museum has served as a vacuum, drawing in Bigfoot information, and it is a safe harbor for those who want to talk about it, said Michael Rugg, founder and curator of the museum. He says this is a place for people who want to hear, please tell me more, rather than be ridiculed. And it invites you to spend some time in the woods on the verge of discovering Bigfoot. You can find this museum south of the entrance to the Henry Cowell Redwood State Park in Felton, California. This is an area that's been having Bigfoot encounters since 1930. As a listener of this show, you might know that, well, I'm not a believer. 
But if I was ever in that area, I would definitely check it out. I really would. But now, let's go to story time. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Charlie, you got other things to think about. Your little boy. You don't want him to read about you in the papers. There's only one person in the world to decide what I'm going to do, and that's me. You're making a bigger fool of yourself than I thought you would, Mr. Kane. I've got nothing to talk to you about. You're licked. Why don't you... Get out if you want to see me have the warden write me a letter. If anybody else I'd say was going to happen to you, it'd be a lesson to you. Only you're going to need more than one lesson. You're going to get more than one lesson. Don't worry about me, Gettys. Don't worry about me! I'm Charles Foster Kane! There was a scene near the end of the 1941 film Citizen Kane in which the reporter Jerry Thompson talks to Kane's second wife, Susan Alexander. At the end of the conversation, she tells him that he should talk to Kane's butler Raymond because that he knows where all the bodies are buried. Now, it's common knowledge that Citizen Kane was loosely based on the life of William Randolph Hearst although not as closely as most people think. But some people have speculated that the comment that Susan Alexander made about the bodies was a reference to a real-life incident in the life of William Randolph Hearst. It had to do with the death of Thomas H. Hintz, an American silent film producer, director, screenwriter, and actor who was a very important man in the early days of film. In an interview filmmaker Peter Badanovich conducted with Orson Welles, Orson Welles said, In the original script, we had a scene based on a notorious thing that Hearst had done, which I still cannot repeat for publication. I cut it out because I thought it hurt the film and wasn't in keeping with Kane's character. If I had kept it in, I would have had no trouble with Hearst. He wouldn't have dared admit it was him. Badanovich asked if he shot the scene, and Welles responded, No, I didn't. I decided against it. If we kept it in, I would have bought silence for myself forever. Thomas H. Hintz died at the age of 44 aboard William Randolph Hearst's yacht, or shortly after he left the yacht, depending on whose version of the story you listen to. Many important celebrities were aboard the yacht that night, and this may or may not include legendary filmmaker Charlie Chaplin. Ince's death has been the subject of much speculation and scandal over the years. And if you want to find the definitive truth on what happened, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Thomas Harper Ince was born on November 16, 1882 in Newport, Rhode Island. He was the son of a comedian and first appeared on stage when he was six years old. He began working in films in 1905 for the Edison Manufacturing Company. By 1910, he was working at D.W. Griffith's Biograph Studios as an actor and began directing one-reel shorts. He rose very quickly, and within five years, he was directing westerns with the first film cowboy hero, William S. Hart. Soon he began to get away from directing and moved into production, where he began to develop the organized production methods, creating a disciplined system for filmmaking. 
William Randolph Hearst was a powerful American newspaper publisher who built the, the nation's largest newspaper chain. Since he controlled newspapers in almost every big city in the world and would do anything to sell newspapers, including exaggerating or inventing stories, it wasn't good to get him on your bad side. It might be hard for some people to imagine the power that he had in his day, but one must remember that almost all the news and information came from the newspaper, and since he controlled a majority of papers across the country, one word from him could make or break a career. Even though Hearst was married, in 1919 he began having an affair with the 23-year-old Marion Davis. She was an actress who was known to have a stutter. She had already appeared in a few films when her relationship with Hearst began, but Hearst decided that he wanted to make her a big star. In 1924, Hearst turned to Thomas H. Ince for help, and the two made a deal for Hearst to use Ince's studio for making films to showcase Marion Davis through Hearst's company, Cosmopolitan Productions. Now, to make the story even more interesting, Hearst had become concerned that Marion might be having an affair with legendary silent film star Charlie Chaplin. Rumors had circulated that because Hearst was away a lot taking care of business, Chaplin and Davis began fooling around a little while he was making the film The Gold Rush. Some say that Hearst had hired a private detective or two to find out if anything was going on between the couple. On November 15, 1924, Hearst decided to throw a party on the Oneida, his 215-foot yacht. This was both to celebrate Thomas Ince's birthday and the partnership between himself and Ince. Along with Hearst, Marion Davis, and Ince were many celebrities, including people from the film industry. Just what happened on the Oneida and who was aboard has been the subject of much speculation. The day after the yacht sailed, Ince was taken off and rushed on a motorboat to the mainland. Two days later, on November 19th, Thomas H. Ince was dead. The official story goes as follows. Ince suffered from severe ulcers and was told never to drink alcohol. During his birthday celebration, he indulged himself with a few drinks, rich desserts, and salty almonds. During the meal, he began to feel sick and left to go to his room. That night, moaning was heard from Ince's cabin, and Dr. Daniel Carson Goodman, a Hollywood screenwriter as well as a licensed physician, was called. Ince had been vomiting blood all night and was complaining of heart pains. Goodman diagnosed Ince as having a severe heart attack, and he was quickly put on a motorboat and taken to the mainland. Once in San Diego, he was taken by stretcher with blood on his clothes, and put on a train to take him to Los Angeles. But on the train, his condition continued to worsen. On a stop in Belmar, he was taken off the train to a local hotel. Ince's wife, Eleanor, was called, and she and her son rushed to the hotel. She took him back to their Beverly Hills home, and the following morning, Ince passed away. The official cause of death was listed as Heart failure as a result of an attack of acute indigestion. This, of course, was due to his consumption of salted almonds and champagne. Both were forbidden due to his ulcers. Now here's the real problem with the official story of his death. It's boring. 
I mean, where's the fun of a man dying of indigestion? Now let's tell the exciting version. Like I said, Hearst was afraid that something was going on between Chaplin and his mistress, so he invited Chaplin to the party so he could keep an eye on the couple, to see if he could detect anything going on between the two. Charlie arrived with his Japanese servant, or chauffeur, or secretary, depending on who you listen to, Toraichi Kono. Also aboard the yacht was movie columnist Loretta Parsons, who worked for the Hearst newspapers. During the night, Hearst woke to find Marion wasn't in her bed, so he grabbed his gun and went looking. In the darkened galley area, he saw what he thought was Chaplin making love, or maybe just kissing Marion. In a jealous rage, he shot a bullet into the head of the silent film comedian. Now, Chaplin and Ince have basically the same body type and the same curly, wavy hair. So it's not surprising that it wasn't Chaplin who took the bullet, it was Ince. Now, not only had Hearst shot the wrong man, but Luella Parsons, the Queen of Hollywood, the first gossip columnist in the United States, witnessed the whole thing. The gunshot, of course, woke everybody aboard the ship and they all came running. Now Hearst had to fix this and fix it quick. But for this man, it was no problem. He had the power to destroy careers. It was easy for him to convince all those aboard to keep silent. As for Parsons, he signed her to a very lucrative deal with his newspapers, and she would work for him for the rest of her career. When the body was removed, Toraichi Kono watched from near the ambulance, and he could see clearly that Ince was bleeding from a bullet hole in the head. Whatever happened on the yacht that night, rumors began to fly very quickly. And this might have been brought on by Hearst himself. The story that appeared in the Hearst newspapers never mentioned the yacht or the party, but said that Ince was taken ill in Hearst's home and had been rushed to be with his family. This was found to be a lie very quickly since a lot of people had seen Ince and the rest get aboard the yacht. So why was Hearst lying? It probably had something to do with alcohol being aboard the ship, because this was in the days of Prohibition. Now this is an interesting part of the story as well. It's always been assumed that alcohol was part of the deal, but you see, Hearst wasn't a drinker. He never touched alcohol, and he didn't like it when others drank. In fact, he only tolerated his guests to have a drink or two, and if they had more, they would find themselves being escorted out and never invited back. Also, Marion was a drinker, so he tried to keep alcohol away from her. Marion Davis later claimed that there was no booze aboard the ship, saying that if Ince had been drinking whiskey, he would have had to brought it himself. Of course, she also claimed that there were no weapons aboard the ship, but it was well known that Hearst kept a diamond-encrusted, pearl-handed revolver on the yacht. Rumors continued when Toraichi Kono told his wife about seeing the bleeding from the bullet hole in Ince's head while being put into the ambulance. And she told a few other of the domestic workers, and the tale quickly got around. In fact, I have heard that Kono told the story his whole life. But within days of him telling his wife the story, phone calls began to be made to the authorities. Within weeks, San Diego District Attorney Chester C. Kempling was forced to look into the matter. 
Also adding to the rumors was the fact that Ince's body was cremated very soon after his death, leading some to believe that this was done to prevent an autopsy, which, of course, could have proved murder. Both Charlie Chaplin and Louia Parsons claimed not even to have been aboard the yacht that evening, even though, from everything I've read, they actually were. Soon after Ince's death, the morning headlines of the Los Angeles Times which wasn't a Hearst newspaper, was movie producer shot on Hearst yacht. But by the afternoon edition, the headline had mysteriously been replaced. Some people have suggested it was Hearst's influence that got the headline changed. William Randolph Hearst said, after getting frustrated over hearing the constant rumors, not only am I innocent of this murder, so is everybody else. In 2001, a film was released called The Cat's Meow. It was a film by Peter Bodanovich, and it's about the events described here. The events of the murder. It starred Kristen Dunst as Marion Davis, Edward Herman as W.R. Hurst, Carrie Elwes as Thomas Ince, and it had the strange casting of Eddie Izzard as Charlie Chaplin. It was written by Stephen Peros, based on his own play, but according to Badanovich, he was well aware of the story before this. Badanovich said he learned of this murder story from Orson Welles. Welles said that he had heard the story from Charles Lederer, who was Marion Davis's nephew, and Badanovich said he confirmed it with Lederer himself. As for the film The Cat's Meow, Badanovich said... And when Orson told me the story, it was virtually the same story as what Stephen Perros had written. Not the particulars in terms of the letter or the hat. Those deals were hypothesized by Stephen based on his research. But the actual plot of what happened and who was going and why. It was all the same. Bob Butchard, who's a film historian, said in Mysteries and Scandals that the Los Angeles Police Department made an immediate investigation about hearing of the death. He said, the body was examined in the presence of the studio manager. No marks, no wounds were found on the body. And he later said, I think the idea that a man as rich and powerful as Terse could commit murder in a crime of passion was something that had a great deal of appeal to the popular imagination. Thomas Ince's wife, Nell, always maintained that she was with her husband when he died at their home and there was no truth to the rumor that he had been shot. She said, Do you think I would have done nothing if I suspected that my husband had been the victim of foul play on anyone's part? Of course, many assume that she was paid off by Hearst. In fact, Nancy Ince Probert, the granddaughter of Ince, said, My father remembers getting into his room, seeing him, talking to him, as much as you can when somebody is sick. I always remember my father telling me that he got to visit his father in the last few days. Now, remember Patty Hearst? In the 1970s, she was kidnapped, then became a member of the Sibonese Liberation Army. Well, she's the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, and she talked of what her parents thought of a possible murder. She said, They said flatly it was not true. It's ridiculous. Ignore them. They don't know what they're talking about. People have been saying these things for years. Just ignore them. They don't know what they're saying. 
There's a couple other versions of Ince's death, such as Hearst accidentally stabbing Ince in the heart with Marion Davis's hat pin, or Hearst attempting to poison Chaplin, but Ince drinking the poison by mistake. One of the most bizarre stories involves a lady named Abigail Kinsolving. She was Davis's secretary, and she was on the yacht that weekend. Allegedly, she claimed that she had been raped by Ince, and it was she who killed him. She was an unmarried woman and did have a baby a few months later. Now for the strange bit. A short time after giving birth, she died mysteriously in a car accident near Hearst's castle in San Simeon. She had a suicide note, but apparently it looked like it had been written by somebody else. And some say it was the handwriting of two different people. And the body was found by two of Hearst's bodyguards. Now, doesn't that sound suspicious? And Marion Davis financially supported the baby after it was sent to an orphanage. Some have put doubt in the story because a lady named Margaret Livingston was also aboard the yacht, and Margaret was the alleged mistress of Ince. So why would Ince sexually attack Kinsalvin if he had his mistress aboard the ship? You know, I'm starting to believe that after all this research that every married man in Hollywood had a mistress and basically everybody was sleeping with everybody. Now, apparently, for years after his death, D.W. Griffith, who had once hired Ince and became partners with him, said, All you had to do to make Hearst turn white as a ghost is mention Ince's name. There's plenty wrong there, but Hearst is too big to touch. The most powerful media mogul in America. There's a lot of money in movies, W.R. Yeah, mine. The most famous movie actor in the world. Mr. Chaplin, the true honor to meet you, sir. Faye was a character builder, right, Charlie? I don't know, Tom. You tell me. You're in love with me, aren't you? Not as much as you are with you, Charlie. And the rising star who stole their hearts. I love you so much. I love you. Can I be frank with you, W.R.? I could keep an eye on her for you. Hmm. What makes you think she needs to be watched? Together for a luxurious weekend cruise. He's heard about us. That would end in murder. Nothing can happen this weekend. What the hell is going on here? I swear I heard a shot. Now, by God, I'm going to make sure that none of this gets in the paper. I'm asking you join me in an oath of silence but you do not know what happened aboard this boat has anybody got a match thanks now i can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack doesn't it seem like in the early days of hollywood no one ever died at a young age without some sort of mystery or controversy yet if there's one person in the 1920s that could cover up a murder it would have been william randolph hearst He had the money, the power, and the influence to get what he wanted. But of course, just because he could doesn't mean he would or did. You know, Hearst was a very smart man, so if he was angry at Chaplin, he could have used his newspapers to get revenge. But that being said, who knows what a person might do when they find their lover in the arms of another. But when I think about it, Marion Davis was Hearst's mistress. So wasn't Davis doing the same thing to Hearst's wife as, if the murder story was true, that Chaplin was doing to Hearst? 
There are so many questions, and you know what? We'll never know the truth, but if you need to pick one for what you believe, I would suggest the murder story. It's a lot more fun. Now, before I go, I want to talk a little bit about Citizen Kane. It's common knowledge that it was based on William Hearst, but, but one thing people don't seem to understand, Hearst was only a basis for the character of Kane. The actual character was a combination of a lot of people. One reason why Hearst was mad about the film Citizen Kane was the character of Susan Alexander, who most assumed was based on Marion Davis. I saw an interview with Wells once, and he said that he regretted the way that turned out. The character wasn't based on her, but, but on a few other women. He said, I thought we were very unfair to Marion Davis, because we had somebody very different in the place of Marion Davis. And it seemed to me to be something of a dirty trick and does still strike me as being something of a dirty trick, what we did to her. And I anticipated the trouble from Hearst for that reason. We at Psycon could use your help in keeping our podcast going. Why not think about becoming a sponsor at our Patreon page? Just go to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm for more information. And sincerely, thanks to all those that already support the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. On the ninth show of Take 5, Anthony and Jack talk about the weather for five minutes. And by the weather, I mean the wet stuff. Check out this and all the other great shows at Psycon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, go ahead. I always answer every email. And don't forget to enter the contest to win a mug. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and I understand that, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. Those reviews really help me out. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write the story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme song. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And as always, a special shout out to all those who repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Thank you, everybody. I'll be back next week with the 99th show of Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream.
She was the dawn of just new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee, 